0: Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. Join me in prayer, would you? Father God, i um... Give us joy in thinking about your word this morning. May it uh, enrich our minds and embolden our faith. Give us your Holy Spirit that, um, that we may hear what you want to say to us today. Amen. Well, most of you have already picked up on the fact that, uh, that we're in a, a series on the book of Job. Pastor Dave started it last week. And what is it, Pastor Dave? Is it four weeks? Six, Six weeks. All right. Um, the book of Job is not an easy book. I don't know how many of you have ever read the book of Job, but you can pretty much um, get most of the whole thing by reading the first two chapters and the end of the last chapter. Most everything that everybody knows about the story of Job is just in, in those two and a half chapters. In the middle, the, the 30 or 40 chapters in the middle are very philosophical, very Hebrew. Um, they're written in a style of, of the literature, the wisdom literature, of uh, about 2, 4,000 B.C., um, and they're pretty challenging. We're going to... We're going to look at some ideas from that center section today. In chapter 2, we're introduced to, uh, to three friends of Job um, uh, like this. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite heard about all the troubles, by the way, nobody has any idea what a Temanite, a Shuhite, or a Naamathite are. Um, the, the book of Job is, the, is believed to be the oldest book in the Bible And it's set in a culture that is totally gone So nobody knows where these guys are from But in the, to the people of that time They knew what town or what area or what kingdom or whatever they came from Okay, When they heard about all the troubles that had come upon him They set out from their homes and met together by agreement uh, to, um, to go and sympathize with him And comfort him When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And then that whole middle portion of Job is this dialogue back and forth. One of these guys, you know, Eliphaz or Zophar, will do two chapters on his thoughts on what's happening to Job. And then Job will come back with a chapter or two. Uh, of his response to that. And then one of the other guys will speak and it goes that way almost to the end until finally God speaks. And then in the last half chapter, more or less, the whole, thing, um, the whole thing wraps up. If you have never read Job, it would be a good idea for you just for this series to read the first two chapters in the last chapter this coming week just so you have kind of the big picture of what's happening if you, if you don't know. So I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone a week or two ago. Um, let's call him Chuck, since that's his name. <laughs> and he asked, how was your Easter? And I said, it was great. Our kids were there, and our grandkids were there, and we had this great dinner. It was a wonderful, really wonderful time. And I said, how was yours? your family's in in California, right? And he said, I haven't spoken to my parents in years. They kind of did a number on me when I was growing up, and, you know, we just don't talk. I assume they're still alive. Somebody would call me if they died, right? Do you have any siblings? I asked him. He said, yeah, I have a sister. She's out in California, too. I contacted her, uh, few years back and said, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we just spoke on the phone once a month or so? And he said, about a year later, she wrote back to him. I just really felt bad for him, felt a little guilty that my Easter was so good, and he must have been all by himself on Easter. He's a, he's a single guy. One of the reasons why Job, the book of Job, has endured is because everybody has pain. There is no escaping from trouble and hard times and grief if you're a human being. Pastor Dave kind of addressed that issue last week. We live in a broken world and bad stuff is going to happen. If by chance you are young and have led a charmed life up to this point and you had great parents, you had a safe environment, everything has been pretty good up to this point, wait a minute because sooner or later it will come. My mother died of cancer when I was nine and a half. She was 39 years old. My father grieved for years even after he remarried. When someone that you care about is suffering, you want to help. But what do you say? And what do you not say? And what about when it's you that are going through a really miserable time. How do you deal with that? So Job had these these three friends. Typically, when people talk about the book of Job, they're referred to as, as the comforters. The problem is they weren't very comforting. In this repeated dialogue between Job and his comforters, they keep coming back to this one point What did you do? If you've read the book, the first chapter of the book of Job, it starts off with God um, having this conversation with Satan and says, have you seen my servant Job? A righteous man who, uh, a blameless man who does what's right and hates evil. That's a really extraordinary thing for God to say about a human being. Here's a blameless guy. For God who can read minds and sees everything to say of this guy, he's blameless, he's righteous, he hates evil. That's amazing. So it's not surprising that Job's friends couldn't nail him on anything. They didn't say, yeah, I heard you swear once are know you cheated on your income tax? They just kept saying, what did you do? So here's one of the, here's one of the things that uh, Eliphaz the Temanite says. We're going to focus on, on this for a few minutes. He, um, I'm only going to focus on the kind of the last few lines that are kind of in bold there. The first part of it is kind of snarky. Oh yeah, You've you've you're always the one who's helping others, who's encouraging, who's teaching. You've got all the right words. And then look at the is it in okay, look down at verse seven, all right? Do you see that? He says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Were the where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed. Those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. You get what he's saying, right? You did something terrible, Job. For God to do this to you, you must secretly be a really bad person. And they just keep blaming him and blaming him and blaming him. But Job, God had already clearly said, was blameless. Not that Job wasn't a sinner, and I think Job certainly knew that. But humanly speaking, and compared to a lot of us, he was a really good guy. Pastor Dave texted me uh, this image here. Is it up there? Put it up there, Justin. All right. Scholars now believe Job's friends were first-year seminary students. <laughs> <laughs> We think that's hilarious because we used to be first-year seminary students. We weren't like that, but we knew guys who were. <laughs> but I don't want to be too hard on first-year seminary students or our pre-sem guys who were present here this morning because I think all of us go through faith stages when it comes to how we deal with trouble in our lives or especially trouble in someone else's lives. And the the stages are something like this. Number one, I have no clue what to say to someone who's in a bad time. And then we grow spiritually or we take some university or or seminary level classes. Stage two is I have all the answers. And that's when we start dropping platitudes on people. We're gonna talk about a few of those in a little bit. And then, as, as every um, newish pastor eventually figures out, we get to the stage at where we basically can say, I don't have any answers, but I'm here for you. And actually, the Comforters did this first. This is, this is interesting. After that little interlude, that I read about how the comforters showed up and, and they said they didn't even recognize him. He looked so terrible. He was covered from head to, head to toe with sores and boils and he was sitting in rags on, the, on a garbage dump heap. That's, what, that's how people demonstrated their grief in those days. They would sit on the, they used to burn garbage. We don't do that anymore. We put it in big trucks and haul it away, sand But they used to just take garbage to a, a ditch or a field somewhere and pile it up and light it on fire. And when people were grieving, they would go and they would sit on the ash heap, throw ashes on their head, and it was a sign of mourning. And then, and then it says this. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So interestingly, they, they kind of started out by saying, I don't have the answers. We don't have the answers, but we're here for you. And you know what? They should have just left it right there, but they didn't. That's when, that's when Eliphaz the Temanite goes into this thing like, uh, Job, you must have done something bad. So there's these extended commentaries that basically boil down to, what did you do? You know, that would have been as if someone had said to my dad, going through the death of his wife, your wife must have done something really terrible for God to do this to her, or else you did. Who would say that? But these three comforters say it basically over and over and over. And here's the thing, that idea that when something goes wrong, probably someone deserves it, is common throughout history and throughout cultures. I've heard people in a hospital bed just having gotten a diagnosis of cancer say to me, Pastor, what did I do? Or why is God punishing me? Or sometimes they know God is punishing me for doing da-da-da-da-da, stuff like that. Jesus experienced that too. He was with his disciples going in, in Jerusalem. They were going up to the temple. Every undeveloped society, even today, is full of beggars and blind people and stuff like that. If you go to India or some parts of Africa, you'll find these people sitting by the road with a bowl or a cup. And they hung around by the temple. They guilted people a lot as they were going to worship. And here was this man who the gospel of John says was born blind. And his disciples say to Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this guy or his parents, so that he was born blind? And Jesus kind of said, you don't get it at all, do you? This has nothing to do with him or his parents, but with a plan that God had. Still, people do say, well, what, why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? And of course, sometimes the things that happen to us are because we deserve it. I don't know if you can see this scratch on my head right here somewhere. Okay, I was up at our place in Wisconsin for a couple of days doing some yard work. We have this kind of high deck with a low beam. Actually, the beam is right about here. <laughs> I was wearing a baseball cap so I wouldn't get too sunburned. Walked right into the beam. Three times. <laughs> yeah, you would think, wouldn't you? But I was wearing this baseball cap and what I finally concluded is that A baseball cap with a brim is not good for your peripheral vision. (laughs) Honestly, I just didn't see it coming. Now, I could have said, God, why are you doing this to me? But really, God had nothing to do with that, other than that, maybe He was giving me a sermon illustration. (laughs) That was me. I walked into the beam. And if someone smokes for 40 years and then they get lung cancer, they can't say, God, why is this happening to me? Or if you have a boatload to drink and then you get in a car, you can't blame God for an accident or for something bad that happens to you. But what about the people who don't smoke and get lung cancer? And surely the other victims of a drunk driver are not responsible, not guilty for what happened to them. If we look closely at what people are going through, if we look at what happened to Job, much of the time it's not about deserving. It's not about God playing this tit-for-tat game. You did this, now I'm going to do that to you. And so the comforters were not at all comforting. I want to give you a little, little aside here because this isn't really the main point of this, but here's some things to not say when you're dealing with someone in trouble, especially someone who's grieving. So don't say, I know how you feel. No, you don't, because everybody feels things differently, and even if you've gone through the same kind of thing that they're going through, you don't really know how they feel. Don't say, well, he's in a better place. I don't know how many of you have seen seen the television commercial that's been on television I, I laugh out loud every time I see it. The little kid says, "Mom, I miss Grandma," and, and Mom says, "I know, honey, but she's in a better place." And have you seen this? No. <laughs> she she says, "I know, honey, but but Grandma's in a better place." And then they they switch to. Grandma in a bumper car, Grandpa in a, grandma in a hair salon, grandma dancing, and it's an ad for Friendship Village in Schomburg, a retirement place. <laughs> what exactly do people mean when they say, mm, he's in a better place? Don't say that unless you knew the deceased very personally. You know that their faith, their confidence was in Jesus Christ. And you can say to their family, I know, I am confident that through Jesus, your loved one has eternal life. All right. Don't say the Lord needed another angel. People usually say that when a child has died. There's two things wrong with that. The first one is people who die don't turn into angels. That's just bad theology. Secondly, it's like saying, So God needed my child more than I do? Not comforting. Or even worse, Well, at least you have other children. There is no other child. That is more dear than the one they've lost. Here's a pretty common one to not say. It was her time to go. What are you, Buddhist or something? You know, we don't teach karma. And that there's some fatalistic moment when no matter what anyone does, bingo. That was the moment. There are also good things you could say or should say. They're a little more complicated and um, here's, a, here's a long ad, uh, internet address um, with, with some really good ones. I know you can't write that all down, so just Google Ministry Matters. It's a website, some, some guy's website, and 10 things you should say to a grieving person. Some really good, good points there about what to say and what to do. And you know what? All of us are going to are gonna be in that position sooner or later, so check it out. But back to thinking about Job. So it's important to bring, to avoid bad comfort. It's good to bring some real comfort, but what about if it's you that's gotten the short end of the stick here? Finally, Eliphaz does come up with a little piece of good advice. He says, But if I were you, I would appeal to God. I would lay my cause before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Basically, Eliphaz says, talk to God about this, Job. Job thinks that's a pretty good idea, apparently, and so he prays. Job chapter 6, he says, Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for. By the way, to modern ears, that sounds like, some, like someone is talking about God, not to God. But in ancient times, when you came before a ruler or a king, you didn't address them in the first person. You didn't say, hey, king, here's what I want. You would speak in the third person. You would say, may the king grant my request. So this is Job praying. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me to let loose his hand and cut off my life, he says, I'm ready to die, that then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. In a way, it's saying, I wish God would take me before I do something that I would rather not do, before I say something That I could regret. So, you guys all pray, right? Almost every American, even though America is becoming less and less religious, almost every American in surveys say that they pray. We especially pray when things are going badly for us, don't we? When things are going good, it's easy to kind of ignore God, forget about Him. When things are not going so good, then all of a sudden there's God but prayer is way, way deeper and more complicated than we often think. It's so misunderstood, I believe. God is not some celestial vending machine that you put your 50 cents in and God gives you what you want. Prayer is not where you just bring your shopping list to God and say, here's what I want, Here's what I need, you know. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a... Thank you. There are other people my age who still remember Janice Joplin. All right. Okay. That was her prayer. I just... God, all I need is a Mercedes-Benz. My friends all have Porsches. I'm... <laughs> Thank you, Claudia. Okay. Sometimes it seems as if that's what prayer comes down to for most of our time. Dear God, please help my grandma get better. Please help me get a call. Please help me find my soulmate. I wonder how many people have lost their faith because they didn't get the answer to their prayer that they thought God should give them. If you don't know Janis Joplin and her song, maybe you're more familiar with a recent TV show, God Friended Me. In that show, a young man who is the son of an Episcopal priest is an atheist because when his mom had cancer, God did not answer his prayer. And when we have this, this simplistic view of prayer and we don't get what we ask for, then we're disappointed with God, and we think maybe it's hogwash. That's simplistic, because really, prayer is conversation. Prayer is conversation with God. It's it's talking life over with daddy. Do you remember when you were little, when you were three or four years old, and and, and I'm going to hope you had, uh, that you had a daddy when you were three or four years old. And, and you would just want to climb up into his lap and just talk about stuff. Or maybe just be there. Didn't necessarily want anything. Or maybe sometimes you asked for something and daddy said, no, you can't have a cookie right before supper. But getting something wasn't the point, and getting something is really not the point of prayer either, though God invites us to present our request to him. Because sometimes, as I think most of you know by now, we don't always get what we ask for in prayer. In fact, a lot of times we don't get what we ask for in prayer, and probably there's a good reason for that. God knows what's best for us. So prayer is a good thing. Job did it, but it's not all of it. It's important to cultivate a larger relationship with God that includes prayer, but isn't merely turning to God when the roof falls in. Developing a deepening relationship with with God in the good times so that you're ready for the bad times which will surely come. Um, When you're swimming in the ocean and you see a dorsal fin coming at you, that's not the time to sign up for swimming lessons, is it? And so when everything is going wrong is not the time to say, I should figure out my relationship with God. Now is the time to start cultivating or to continue to cultivate a relationship with God, and prayer is part of it, but also Bible reading, because, because our relationship with God is a conversation. We talk to God in prayer, God talks to us through the Bible. And that makes the loop, you know, that completes the conversation. We talk to God, God speaks to us through His Word. Getting in a small group, developing meaningful relationships with other Christians is a really good, a really crucial thing for when the hard times come so that you will actually have comforters. And just to let you know, because your friends in small groups may may not be all that mature, and so you may have to forgive some people, including the pre stem guys, for the things that they will say, um... Sorry, don't mean to bum out all the pre-sum guys. Cultivating your relationship with God. Being in worship. Putting it all together. Because more than, than any one single thing, more than just prayer, your relationship with God will get you through the really hard times. You know, I was doing a funeral... It was, this was years ago and uh, we had done the thing at church and now we were out at the cemetery and we were walking from our cars to the grave site, and some guy, I don't even know who he was, some member of the family was near me and he said, isn't it great to know that this isn't the end of it all for us? And I thought, what a great thing to say. I don't know if it's the right thing in every situation, but it was right for me that day. Because in the midst of that, that funeral, that day of grief, he was pointing me to Jesus. He did that without even mentioning the name of Jesus, but I guess he thought because I was the pastor, I must get it, I must know that when he said, isn't it good to know this isn't the end of everything for us, that I could fill in the blanks, yes because we have eternal life through Jesus. It's Jesus that makes it possible for us to face the grave. It's Jesus that makes it possible to face debilitating disease or financial ruin or a broken relationship or whatever is hurting you right now. I know that sounds a little bit like a platitude in itself, doesn't it? How does that work exactly? Eliphaz said, who, being innocent, ever perished? And you know he meant by that, this wouldn't be happening to you if you were innocent. Who, being innocent, ever perished? I'll tell you who, Jesus. Jesus didn't do anything to deserve the wrath of God. Jesus never swore or got drunk or or cheated or broke up a relationship cruelly. And yet this innocent one took the full weight of God's judgment because he took God's judgment that we in fact did deserve so that we wouldn't have to, so that God would not have to deal with us based on what we deserve because of Jesus We are not getting what we deserve, the hell that we deserve. Instead, God deals with us according to his mercy and forgiveness. Because of Jesus, we can be confident that God is there with us, that what you're going through is not blind chance or meaningless suffering. You know, the secular materialist can only say of life, life sucks and then you die. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon this earth and in my flesh I will see him. And that enabled Job also to go on and say, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. We can say, I know I have a God who loves me, even in the worst that this broken world can give me. God is listening, patient, and compassionate, the one you can turn to in a crisis. And he is the one that you can hold out to others that you know who are in pain. Let's pray. We all have pains, Lord, little ones and big ones, from dealing with final exams to standing at the casket of someone dear and important to us. Who else can we turn to, God, but to you, a gracious, patient, compassionate, forgiving, merciful God? Help us, Heavenly Father, to to be close to you, to come close to you as as you are coming close to us so that we have comfort in our times of grief and difficulty. And help us, Lord, to, to bring Jesus and his sacrifice and your mercy to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.